0: Global tensions are escalating all around the world. Are supply chains prepared for the consequences? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, managing editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain podcast. political conflict with North Korea is at its highest level in nearly 70 years. We seem to be inching towards some version of a catastrophic scenario, ranging from economic sanctions to nuclear warfare. And while the potential human toll must be our chief concern, there's also a serious geopolitical risk to global supply chains. South Korea is a key supplier of components to the electronics sector, and it stands to be crippled by trade restraints that would impact the entire region. Many manufacturers have taken steps to protect themselves against any number of natural disasters, but are they equally aware of the threat posed by geopolitical strife? That's the topic of my conversation today with Jim Wedekamp, CEO of Bravo Solution, a provider of software for managing global procurement. We're going to discuss the state of corporate risk management programs in Asia and around the world. We'll find out what companies are and should be doing to shore up their supply chains against this sometimes overlooked area of risk. And we'll find out whether it's possible to future-proof your supply chain. So here is my conversation with Jim Wedekamp. Jim Wedekamp, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks, Bob. Glad to be here.
0: Jim, we've had some geopolitical flare-up, obviously, in North Korea and South Korea recently. We obviously have concerns of that over the fate of the world, but at the same time, we have some concerns about supply chain. What are the implications of a potential Korean conflict or a Korean war? What's at stake for companies that have put a lot of resources in that part of the world?
1: Well, I think for organizations that are watching that event closely and ones like it, particularly as it relates to their direct material, impacts their ability to meet consumer demand, they're obviously watching this event and others like it with a lot of attention on how it impacts not only near-term supply in terms of what they have on back orders or orders for current demand, but also how it impacts future investment. In those areas, as they start to think about where they may choose to develop additional capacity or future capacity for new products they may introduce.
0: We certainly hear of China as a major source of manufacturing. We hear of Taiwan. We hear of Southeast Asia. I don't know that I hear that much about Korea these days. Is Korea a major source of manufacturing and components, raw materials and products for import into North America?
1: It is a significant tri- contributor still in terms of capacity for integrated circuits, other electronic components, storage, et cetera. But as you indicate, it's in no way unique. So one of the aspects around this particular conflict or the risk of conflict is watching with interest around whether or not the level of export from there and import into North America is changing in a significant way or are we actually seeing organizations react to the potential conflict in a material way in terms of how they're routing their demand. But as you indicate, there are a lot of alternative options in terms of obviously China, even North America itself. So a lot of the organizations that have a dependency on these types of materials do have mitigation plans in terms of alternate sources for supply that may come at different considerations as it relates to cost or quality as alternatives to South Korea.
0: Do you think at this point they should be doing more than simply watching with interest? Should they be taking concrete steps to spread the risk, to mitigate the risk because of what's going on in Korea?
1: Well, I think when you look now with the benefit of a little bit more time released between when a lot of the activities seem to be escalating and things have stabilized, maybe isn't the appropriate term, but have become kind of a, a level set into a new normal, it would indicate that so far they shouldn't have been. So in terms of the behavior that we saw As it related to imports and exports in April and May, the performance of key stocks related to technical providers like Samsung and LG, et cetera, not really fluctuating that much. It seems that actually the lack of response so far has been appropriate.
0: Do you think that a number of companies are committed to single sourcing out of Korea, which puts them at risk?
1: I would say that a lot of the ones that we've talked to are not. So Mm -hmm. in terms of how the manufacturers that we've spoken to are responding to this, most have indicated that while they have providers definitely that they value and that provide the right level of quality at the right cost from that particular location, most have not sat still in terms of having an understanding of availability of capacity or capability from other locations. And I think the other interesting element is most are thinking about different locations for any new capacity or new product introduction that they may be leveraging that kind of capability from.
0: I'm thinking of what happened in Taiwan a few years ago when uh, OEMs were saying, hey, we have no problem in Taiwan. We've diversified our supplier base for, say, disk drives. We've got several of them in Taiwan. (laughs) And of course, when the floods came in, they all got affected. So this supplier... Diversification strategy, I take it it goes beyond adopting multiple sources within Korea.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. As you noted, I think there's a lot of ample capability in China, and many organizations have in the least identified already existing where they're channeling a, a portion of their demand already to Chinese manufacturers or in the least have qualified them certified them from a capability standpoint, understand the pricing as part of their sourcing activities and are in a good position to ramp up additional capacity if
0: necessary. You know, one beneficial outcome of this conflict, and of course, we hope that it doesn't actually turn into a serious conflict. But for companies, maybe this is a good wake up call to begin looking at where they might be at risk and vulnerable in other parts of the world with potential geopolitical storms taking place. So where are some of the potential hot spots elsewhere in the world that you think we ought to be paying attention to?
1: In terms of the risks, I think that you're going to find them kind of all in some of the traditional places you would expect to see them. So where you find underdeveloped economies or areas of political instability. So as you start looking into sub-Saharan Africa, if you're looking into more of Eastern Europe with some of the carryover from the refugee situation, et cetera, that those are all things from a geopolitical standpoint that I think mature supply chain are watching. Um, and those are some of the obvious ones. The other ones that are maybe impacting your more traditionally stable environments like Western Europe or even North America itself is what's happening in the current administrations in, in those different locations as it relates to foreign trade agreements, NAFTA, what are the potential long-term impacts around things like Brexit, et cetera. So there's actually a lot to watch at this particular moment? And then where does it over into more, I guess, specific corporate social responsibility or social risk? And you're seeing supply chains ever more aware of those things and searching for increased avenues and access to data, information sites, risk indices, et cetera, to get a better grip on these things and monitor them more proactively.
0: Certainly top of mind in uh, the minds of risk managers around the world is the potential for natural disasters. We've had enough of those in the last few years to be fully aware of the potential of those events for disturbing or disrupting supply chains. I wonder, though, if risk managers are giving enough weight in addition to that to geopolitical factors. Are they thinking as hard about that as a risk as they are about the more obvious type of stuff like in the form of natural disasters?
1: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. So when we talk about disasters or impacts to supply chains, you naturally always kind of go to the really large climate events like earthquakes and tragedies of that nature. But as you indicate, I think supply chains are more aware at this point of some of the larger scale moving transitions like Brexit and other examples of industrial oriented or political driven changes that can be impacting the supply chain over the long term. And the largest organizations, uh, I think, have always been aware of those situations and have approached their supply chain in a fashion over the past, let's say, 15, 20 years in a way that's more designed to manage for disruption. However, I think you're seeing an increasing maturity in the smaller manufacturers' That similarly are, are starting to have to try and track these things and understand them and are definitely aware of the large risks that can come along with large scale financial difficulty trade or even specific regulations around things like corporate social responsibilities
0: to get back to the geopolitical side, I wonder just how what kind of scenarios risk managers are thinking about or playing out either in their minds or computer simulations or whatever, for instance. There is the far-fetched possibility that we could have a blow-up between uh, China uh, and the U.S. based on China deciding to, I don't know, invade Taiwan or continue to assert what it considers to be its rights around the Philippines and in that part of the world, the seas around there, which we've already seen problems there, which could definitely lead to supply chain disruptions. So should supply chain managers be giving serious thought to what might seem like far-fetched scenarios but are not beyond uh, possibility?
1: Well, I think the change of of what you are seeing and what we would advocate, and definitely I think they're responding, is you are seeing a lot more scenario management and expansive thinking as it relates to planning. So on the upfront standpoint of what are the the high-level risks and where are they coming from, and I think you would see this correlated from different perspectives on the risk landscape. So if you look at 2017, things like large-scale involuntary migration or natural disasters of a major standpoint or large-scale terrorist impacts, are all far more prevalent in the management frameworks and understanding than if you looked two or three years ago where it tended to be things more like cyber attacks or underemployment or inavailability of supply due to quality risk or things like that. So to answer the first question, should they be? Yes. And then in terms of answering the second question of are they? Definitely. So there are more tools available for them to gather the data on these particular areas in terms of modeling different scenarios and possible impacts, and then that's giving them more fuel to develop mitigation plans and start to think about alternatives, whether or not they're actually going so far as to secure those alternatives or or make sure that all of those plans are in place and operational or even future-proof for some of those larger events. I think there's still a little bit of time to see what the failover and response or the mitigation plans look like. But in terms of getting their hands on the transparency and the monitoring for those types of large-scale macro risks and understanding the impact on their supply chain, Definitely the more mature organizations are thinking that way and are investing in intelligence and resources to do so.
0: Risk management, risk assessment, risk mitigation. Where do you recommend that that effort reside within an organization? At what level? Because it involves so much of the company if something goes wrong. Who should be charged with carrying that out within, the, within a company?
1: I think there's a lot of different ways, like many management topics, to approach it. What we definitely see, I guess, as a trend is you either have procurement risk being managed under an umbrella of a global GRC or or, or kind of global risk program, and the procurement supply chain risks kind of falling underneath that umbrella. The other alternative and one that is where we spend a majority of our time as Bravo Solution is around risk management risk is a facet of category management or overall supplier relationship management. And so when we work with organizations on their supplier relationship management strategies, so what are the processes they put in place, what are the activities they engage in with their partners, their preferred, and their strategic suppliers – Having an orientation towards the management planning and mitigation of procurement risk is something we definitely advise and try to seek to embed in every phase of the procurement process from upfront analysis into sourcing and contracting all the way through to ongoing supplier relationship management.
0: So it's more than just supplier diversification, which is an obvious solution to avoiding the risk that might come with any particular part of the world. It sounds like you're talking about another whole level of relationships with suppliers in addition to just spreading the work and spreading the business around.
1: Yeah, because you now go to multiple levels. So where would have just made sure that at my first tier or where I'm negotiating, I've secured alternative sources of capacity or, as you said, diversified my supply base. It's not enough to risk proof or, or protect or mitigate my supply chain. I've now got to reach in tier two, tier three. I've got to understand the entire value chain from raw material all the way through to customer. And also an increasing environment where as a manufacturer, I do less manufacturing potentially than I did in the past and more brand management and potentially distribution. I have to then understand the network impact of those particular risks and work more collaboratively with my supply chain in order to do that. So it's not just making sure I multi-source or dual-source, it's an overall orientation on how I day in, day out, month in, month out, or quarter by quarter, work with, communicate, and develop my supply
0: base. Considering all of the headaches that come with offshoring, with outsourcing, with a distributed manufacturing strategy, and now these geopolitical blowups around the world, I am wondering if some companies might not be motivated to use this as a reason for reshoring back to the U.S. or back to North America, just saying we don't even want those headaches anymore. Do you see that trend at all?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think you've seen and you would have looked at over the past five years or so that there was an initial offshoring that went to an extremely high level in terms of manufacturing capability. And you saw some of that come back to either nearshoring or re-onshoring, if you will. But price is also really still an extremely motivating factor. So while a lot of CPOs will talk about risk and the importance to protect the company, the brand and the continuity of supply, increased savings achievement and reduction of cost of operation is still the number one priority. So you'll see that balanced and you'll see basically a profile or a portfolio of supplier relationships developed to try to balance those two. So I don't think you you see it going so far as to reversing those decisions, but you see that these organizations are operating in a more educated fashion and making more informed decisions, that may still mean exposing the organization to more risk in order to do so. But the long-term benefit on the cost of supply is worth it.
0: So the bottom line calculation is still that, is, that it's worth it, at least at this point, right? Yeah, Absolutely. You mentioned the phrase future-proofing. Is that even possible? given the complexity and the chaos inherent in today's world?
1: Future-proofing in totality? Absolutely not. I think there's a couple of things that you see the smart organizations doing, and they're first off trying to see what are the more intelligent decisions they can make to avoid future challenges, for sure, or to put themselves in a position where they reduce the risk that could be experienced by the organization. But secondarily, the other aspect is, as we said, if they're knowingly, exposing the organization to increased risk based upon decision they're making, are they ready? So have they developed the right lens to look at how that risk develops so they're able to emphasize the importance of what is critical to them and reduce the tremors that come from those things that aren't so important, and that they are prepared then to execute their mitigation plans at the right time. And so it all comes down to how much they can minimize the potential risk once it's realized and the failover and response process and how agile they are to execute that is what will protect them on that future aspect. So, I don't think anybody would rightly sit there and say, hey, we've looked at this whole situation, we have an understanding, we know there'll be no potential loss from future risks. It's rather the, the winner, if you can say there's a the winner in an event like some of the ones we're discussing, are those that have their plans ready and they've put themselves in a position of agility enough to be able to react to them more rapidly.
0: Well, that's a good point. And it suggests that maybe companies shouldn't be spending too much time protecting themselves against specific risks because so often they're chasing disasters that happened from the past. And the one that comes up in the future is going to be different. So are you recommending then that they really need to just be assured that they're resilient against no matter what comes down the pike as opposed to focusing on particular types of uh, potential disruptions?
1: I think it's difficult to advise that somebody be protected for everything or anything. But I think when you look at different industries or different reliance on different commodities, you definitely can profile what are the most likely risks. I mean, in in terms of looking at any risk management program, the axis of likelihood is one of the most important things you can look at. And the axis of the criticality or the impact is the other. And that applies in this situation as well. So we definitely advise organizations not to try to think about every scenario, but to think about the ones that are, the, I guess, the most important as it relates to that intersection of likelihood and impact.
0: I'm getting from your comments, though, Jim, that you feel that companies are doing a pretty good job that they're not particularly asleep at the wheel with regard to risk like they might have been in the past. You seem pretty confident Ooh. that they're on the path to success in this area.
1: Yeah, I would take the, the latter as a true statement. I don't think any of the folks that we work with in terms of leading CPOs would stand back and say they're satisfied with their particular position. However, I would say that it is a, an area that again, reaching all the way back to the financial crisis where you had hundreds of suppliers closing by the week and by the month. That has been growing in its maturity and you would be hard-pressed to find an organization that isn't aware of this as a topic and something that they need to be investing in. And now they're in different stages of maturity, for sure. They're taking different approaches. So on the flip side of that, they know that this topic is important. They're taking action However, the method of taking action and the tools and the information sources and the best practices oriented with it right now are far from established or mature. So there's still a lot of organizations trying to get their hands on the best way to focus on the right set of data. So in an environment where you have increased availability of data sources and and with Internet of Things, more transponders and, and listening devices across the globe in terms of how you might track and understand given risks, places all the more emphasis on how you filter that information and then all the more emphasis on how you tailor it to your particular scenario and take action on it. And that is where there's still a lot of work to be done, both by leading supply chains, but also by providers such as ourselves to put our stakeholders in the right position to make the right decision.
0: A mixed report card, but not terribly pessimistic. Jim camp I want to thank you so much for spending time with us to explain to us some of the things that companies should be doing or are doing to protect themselves against geopolitical risk and other kinds of risk that might disrupt supply chains in general. Thank you very much for being with us.
1: Thanks, Bob. I've enjoyed the conversation.
0: That was my conversation with Jim Wedekamp of Bravo Solution, talking about how to protect supply chains from the risk of geopolitical strife. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where you post a new episode of this podcast. for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at scbrain.